The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. The greatest freedom we have is our freedom from sin provided for us by Christ. But it's a great, great freedom to gather as a nation week after week and know that we can come to this place and meet and walk away without fear. And if you stood just then, we appreciate you, uh, each one of you, because you've sacrificed in a great way at some point in time for that, and many have paid the ultimate price so we can worship today. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for freedom we have in Christ. Thank you for these men and women who have served. Uh, Many of them have fought in wars. They've been deployed to places that uh, have protected us. And God, I pray blessing over them and their families. I pray for those that currently serve. Lord, would you protect them? Would you allow them to experience rich mercy and grace in all that they do? In Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles or your app, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read two verses, verses 8 and 9, and uh, this morning we begin a brand new series. It's a series on eternity, eternity. We'll be doing this the next four weeks, then we'll have Christmas, a New Year's challenge, and then we'll take off after the first year in a new direction. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore also, as we have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So Paul says to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, and it doesn't matter if I'm here or if I'm gone, our goal in life is to be pleasing him regardless. So for the next four weeks, that's what we're going to do. When it comes to travel, vacations, and getting away, how many of you are planners out there? You love to plan everything out in advance, love to know everything about. And how many of you are not planners? You're more spontaneous and uh, you let somebody else do that for you. We're going to pray for you guys right there, okay? <laughs> we're going to stop right there. These are books from my library. This is about uh, maybe a third or a half of them. And uh, so if we go somewhere, one time we went to Greece, uh, several times we've had the privilege to go to Italy. And we stopped off in Spain. We lost a bet and had to go to Chicago. And... Uh, <laughs> So, but I'm a planner. I love to read. I love to plan. I love to know what's next. I I love to have information about where it is we're going and what it is we're going to do. And and so for me, that's part of the fun. You think about it. If you go on vacation, you plan on where you're going to go. You plan how you're going to get there. In fact, uh, yesterday I pulled one of these out to show to my grandkids. They had no idea what it was. I said, this is a map. And they said, a what, Papado? I said, a map. Uh, You find your place on there. And they said, why didn't you just use the GPS? That's what they asked me. (laughs) And I said, well, it's a long story. I'll tell you why when you get older and can understand wise things. But you think about it. You plan a vacation. You plan how you're going to get there. You plan how you're going to go. You plan where you're going to stay. You plan what you're going to see, what you're going to do. You plan how much it's going to cost you. It always costs you a lot more. But you plan. I, I do anyway. Uh, this past October, uh, when we were gone a couple of Sundays, we had planned a trip to Normandy. Last thing on my bucket list was Normandy, and uh, we'd saved a bunch of airline miles. We went to Normandy for about, uh, in France for about 10 days. And I, I tell you, when, when we were playing those songs, my mind raced back to those beaches and those pillboxes and thinking of the great price that was paid. And I cried a bucket of tears at that cemetery. You've seen Saving Private Ryan at the end of it. In that cemetery, we stood when they lowered the flag and played taps, and I couldn't see anything because of all the tears years. You plan, and you go places, and you do things after planning, and you know where you're going and where you're headed and what you're going to do. And we do all that 
when we leave for one or two weeks. But what about planning for eternity? What about understanding eternity? What about reading about eternity? What about, what about understanding eternity? We're going to be gone not just for a couple of weeks, but we're going to be gone forever. We have a travel guide. I hold it in my hand and you hold it in your hand, either on your device or in, in the Bible you have in your hand, and it tells us a whole lot about where we're gone. But sadly for many of us, we haven't read where we're headed. We don't understand much about what's there. Sometimes we think it's too hard. Sometimes we think it's too difficult to understand. But the reality of it is the scriptures talk a lot about eternity, talk a lot about where we're going to be headed. There are a lot of questions. And sometimes when you think about eternity, we're like an inquisitive three-year-old. How many of you have three or four-year-old toddlers? Let me see your hands. So you got a three or four-year-old, they're asking you questions, simple questions like, Dad, why is the sky blue? Why do cows eat grass? I mean, simple questions. What, why, how big is God? I mean, easy things to answer, right? So we think about eternity and we have questions too. In fact, I'm going to ask you, you're going to see, I'm going to Facebook in a couple of weeks, what are your questions on eternity? And hopefully you'll send me dozens of those and I'm not going to be able to answer all of them, but we'll answer some of them. So what are some of your questions about eternity? What will we be like? What will we do? Will we know one another? Will I recognize my friends and family? What will our bodies be like? Is heaven a never-ending praise service? Will we have wings? Will we eat wings? Will it be boring? I mean, what is heaven going to be like? One author writes, he wrote a book called uh, uh, Why Men Hake on the Church, David Murrow's his name, and he says, popular notions of heaven strike fear into the hearts of most men. What man wants to spend eternity wearing a white robe floating on clouds and plucking a harp? Men fear heaven because it sounds dull. No challenge, no uncertainty, no fun. In heaven, there's nothing to do. Excuse me, there is one thing to do, that is to sing. As John Ortberg wrote in his book, Everybody's Normal to Get to Know Him, my favorite book title, he said he sang in the youth choir under the direction of Mrs. Olson. When she became frustrated with the boy, she'd clap her hands and say, Children, you better start singing because when we get to heaven, that's all you're going to be doing. He writes, For an 11-year-old boy, the thought of 10 billion years under the enthusiastic direction of Ms. Olson was not my idea of eternal bliss. <laughs> so what's it going to be like? What are we going to look like? Well, we know one another. What, 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 what's going to take place in eternity? I want to encourage you that whatever God has planned for us and whatever we will experience will be far greater, infinitely more joyful, infinitely more exciting, infinitely more worshipful. The greatest worship service you will be to will pale in comparison when you are in the presence of the Savior. And the most exciting thing you've experienced on earth I mean, we've all experienced exciting things, and, and the most exciting thing you've experienced on earth will pale in comparison to being in the presence of the Father and doing His bidding throughout all of eternity. And so when we finish this study, I pray that you will walk away with a much greater appreciation for heaven. In fact, I pray you will be like an older man who is dying. And his 40-something-year-old son was in his house room and said, Dad, in the next 48 to 72 hours, you're going to be gone. What's it feel like? His dad said, son, I feel like a young boy on Christmas Eve filled with excitement and anticipation. I feel like a young boy on Christmas Eve filled with excitement and anticipation. Now, if most of us were honest, our thoughts about eternity may not be exactly like that. But my prayer is in four weeks, we'll walk away saying, man, I can't wait. I can't wait to go to this place that is exciting and I anticipate it with all. I want that to be my perspective, don't you? I mean, don't you want to be a place of excitement? So 
We're going to talk this morning on a topic of leaving. This week is leaving, next week is arriving, the week after we'll be staying, and the final week, the weekend, the back end of Thanksgiving, we'll be wondering, W-O-N-D-E-R-I-N-G, and I'm going to answer a bunch of questions that you may have and I have about eternity. But this morning we're talking about leaving, talking about leaving. Teacher was teaching a four-year-old Sunday school class, and she said, how do you get to heaven? One kid said, you got to be good. Another kid said, you got to go to church. Another kid said, you've got to ask Jesus into your heart. One little girl, very confident with her hands on her hips, said, you, the only way you get to heaven is to be dead. <laughs> she's right. I mean, she's right. Unless Jesus comes back, and as I've said a hundred times, the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one of us are going to die. From the youngest one in here, I met a two-month-old over there, I think, or three-month-old, three-week-old, actually, and I met one of our brothers here uh, is going to be 100 years old on Christmas Eve. He's, he comes at 8.15. He's going to be 100 years old. He's got the strongest handshake in this room. I mean, it's amazing. I shake that brother's hand every single Sunday. He never misses. He still drives. He's 99, 99 and, and, and nine months. In, two, in another month, he's going to be 100 years old. Every one of us, from that brother to our three-week-old, are going to die. Everyone, we're going to leave. We're going to leave. So this morning, we're going to talk about leaving. And some of you are thinking, man, I get up to come to this. Because we're going to talk about a very uncomfortable subject this morning. Your death. We're going to talk about your death. Talk about you and me dying. Because the only way to get to heaven, that little girl is right. You've got to be dead. So what do the scriptures teach us about death? In his book, One Minute After You Die, Erwin Lutz, a recently retired pastor of Moody Church, looks at four ways that death is described in the scriptures, and I'm using his book as a takeoff at this point in time. A takeoff from his thing. If you look at the notes, I footnoted him in there. That's where I got this information from. Death is described when it's referring to Jesus, first of all, as a departure. Let me set the scenario for you. It's Luke chapter 9. It's Mount Transfiguration. If you remember that scene, Peter, James, and John have the privilege to go up a mountain with Jesus. Jesus is up there. He is transfigured. His body changes. And there are two people that greet him up there, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great, pro uh, great lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet. And they stand with Jesus, who is, the, uh, who is the greatest prophet, and they stand with Jesus, who is the law fulfiller. And so here they are in the presence of Christ, and Peter, James, and John see this. And if you remember, Peter said, we've got to build a monument here. We've got to remember this place. And Jesus says, no, that's not the important thing. In the midst of that dialogue, here's what we read. This is John, or I'm sorry, this is, uh, first of all, we're going to talk about death described as departure. Death described as departure. In Luke chapter 9, in the middle of this scenario, it says they spoke about his, that Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure. So the first way that we see death described, or a way we see death described in the New Testament is described as a departure. Now, the word departure, there's not the typical word that's used when we see that word translated. It's an interesting word used of Jesus. The Greek word that's used there is exodos. Exodus. Now we get words from that like what? Exodus? What else? Exit. I mean, that's where it comes from. Exodus is the actual Greek word. And what we see is we get the word Exodus from there and we get the word exit from there. So think about Exodus in the Old Testament. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, right? You've got the Pentateuch, the law, the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, then what? 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Exodus, if you were to read through Exodus, you read through the Bible in a year, you read through Exodus, you come to Leviticus and you skip all the way to John, right? <laughs> but, but if you read Exodus, Exodus is a story about a nation in bondage, a nation of Israel being freed from the place of slavery and bondage to enter into the promised land. So when this word is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus, it goes back to the Exodus of, Genesis, of the Old Testament. After they spoke about his exodus, you see the parallel? They spoke about his exodus, the fact that he too will take us from bondage and slavery into an eternal promised land. You see, when you read the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, it's Moses leading the nation out of bondage. When we read about Jesus, we see him leading us out of bondage. When you read the Old Testament, you see Moses leading them through the Red Sea and the conquest, and you see Jesus leading us and him conquering sin and death, the ultimate victory over death. And so we see that his departure, his leaving is certainly an exit, but it's an exodus that is taking us with him through that which would be death. And it's a great picture of what happens. Jesus conquered Satan. He conquered death, the ultimate enemy, so we could follow him. We could follow him there. And so what we see in Revelation 21 is eventually we'll be in a new heaven and a new earth. And it's because Jesus has led us there because Jesus is there. In fact, the disciples are struggling because Jesus has told them he's leaving. And so he gives them some assurance in John chapter 13. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you gone? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now but you will follow later. Jesus says, I'm gone to the other side. You're not ready to come there yet. You're not coming, but I'm going to be there. That's a tremendous promise, my friends. Where I'm gone, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be there and you can come. We don't have to fear death because Jesus is waiting for us on the other side. We don't have to fear death. We know he's there. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. The, the fall of the wall happened. In 1991, by God's grace, one of our dear friends hooked us up with the Slavic Gospel Association, and we adopted a sister church in the Ukraine. In 1992, I and a group of us were privileged to go there for the first time. Now, it was a time of excitement, but there was some fear. It was an exciting time. It was a fearful time. Think about it. At that time, you had to board a plane in Dallas, fly to Chicago, and then go all the way to Moscow, then take a train back to Kiev, then drive an hour and a half down to Belyuserkov, where our sister city is. So we get to Chicago, and uh, as Bev says, I tend to be, uh, she calls it tight, I say I'm a good steward, and so I found us a deal on Aeroflot out of Chicago, and we could save 40 bucks a person. So we flew Aeroflot to Moscow. If you know anything about Aeroflot, it's the most unsafe airline on the face of our planet. We got on that plane in Chicago, and I remember two things. When I sat on the cushion, and went all the way down to plywood. I mean, there was nothing there to keep your butt happy for the next 13 hours. The next thing I remember, there are all these flies buzzing around where we were, and I'm thinking, somebody died, and there's going to be a long trip. That's all I know. But there was, there, was, there was a mixture of excitement and fear, and, and the fear came because when you get to Moscow, there are guys with, with machine guns strapped around their neck. This is 1992. This is only three years after the fall of the wall. We get on a train and travel to an unknown place to meet an unknown people who spoke an unknown language. We were going to stay in their houses. 
They served as unknown foods, and that's a big deal to me, as you know. They, they were communists who hated Americans. We were Americans who feared communists. You remember that? I mean, there were so many unknowns on this trip. It, it was, it was, it was a, a time of excitement, a time of fear. We got in the car, drove from Kiev to Belyasarkov. We were pulled over at checkpoints two times. We were told through our translator, don't say a word in English. So we're sitting in a car with police shining flashlights at us and these little sticks held out. They pull us to the side, they're shining flashlights at us. All, all we can do is nod our head because we can't speak English. The only language we know. And, and then we get exposed to things, and I use the word expose as uh, a pun that's intended, to stuff like this. You ever use one of those things? If you're 230 pounds, I mean, that's a heck of a thing to have to use is all I'm going to say. I'd never seen that. I didn't know whether to run or use it, to be honest with you. And that's the cleanest one I saw in all of the Ukraine when we were there that first time. Everything was a lot worse than that. And so, I mean, there was, there was excitement. I got to get that picture off of there. <laughs> Brings back bad memories, really bad memories. There was excitement, but there was fear. Now, we have been to the Ukraine at least 15 times. Pavel, the pastor, our sister church, we met on that first trip, is now a dear, dear friend. We go to Ukraine now, you know what there is? There's only one emotion. What is that emotion? Excitement. I can't wait because I know who's on the other side. And, and, and I can't wait because the food's a lot better. And I can't wait because they actually have the same kind of toilets we have now. But the primary reason why there's excitement is because we know who's waiting for us on the other side. Dear friends that we love. And Jesus says, hey, you can't come now, but I'm going to be on the other side waiting for you. So you don't have to live in fear of death and wondering what's there because he's on the other side. Just as Pavel Marchuk and Sergei Lazarenko and our Nikolai, whatever his last name is, Marzuk is there and they wait for us. And when we get to the airport in Kiev now, you don't have to fly to Moscow. You go straight to Kiev, and the terminal there is as nice as anything at DFW. And when we go there, they're standing there as soon as we walk out. And it's nothing but hugs and tears of joy. And one day, that's what it's going to be like for us. We don't have to fear, because Jesus says, I'm gone, and one day you can come. So we don't have to fear what's on the other side, because we know who's there waiting for us. Next, it's quite interesting that both Paul and Jesus, Jesus and Paul, refer to death as restful sleep. Restful sleep. In John chapter 11, Jesus resurrects Lazarus, and Lazarus is his dear friend, Mary and Martha's brother, resurrects Lazarus and says, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Now, the words falling asleep there are a euphemism for death. He said he's fallen asleep, but you think about what sleep is. Sleep is rest, sleep is rejuvenation, sleep is refreshment. And so in the Greek and Roman world, when he said somebody's fallen asleep, didn't mean that they put their head down and started snoring, it mean they died. But it's also a metaphor for what it looks like when we do die. When we go to eternity, it's a place of rest, rejuvenation, and refreshment. Does that sound good to you at all? I, I mean, that, that, that's a, it's a, we can all use a little rest, we can all use a little refreshment, we all like to be rejuvenated. And then uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, listen, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He, he says, uh, not everybody's going to die. Jesus is coming back first, but we'll be changed. Everybody's going to get a glorified body one day. By the way, every time I read this verse, I think about our college days. If you got engaged and you attended the chapel on the campus at LSU, when you got engaged, you automatically had to work in the nursery for three weeks. <laughs> think about that. Okay? And there was a plaque in there. And the plaque was 
1 Corinthians 15, 51, the end of it. We're in the nursery and the plaque says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. (laughs) Pretty creative for every baby in that nursery. So what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, hey, we're, we're going to be asleep. Now, some use these verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to teach a doctrine, which I think is wrong, called soul sleep. Soul sleep. That doctrine says this. That doctrine says, after death, when we die, we remain asleep in the grave until our bodies are resurrected. So we die right now. My dear mom who passed away back in March. The doctrine of soul sleep says mom is in a grave right now and she's asleep. And one day, our bodies will be resurrected from that grave, 1 Corinthians 15. And on that day, the, soul, the, the, the resurrected body will then be in the presence of God, this new glorified body. I don't think, this, I, I, I don't think, I know the scriptures don't teach that. I, I think it's an erroneous doctrine. And I think what the scriptures teach is pretty clear. When Moses was on Mount Transfiguration, he had died earlier, but he wasn't asleep, was he? When Stephen in Acts 7.59 is stoned, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was not expecting to stay in the grave asleep. When there was a thief on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus looked at that thief and said, in the future, you'll be with me in paradise. Is that what Jesus said? What did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. His soul didn't go to sleep. He was with Jesus. To be absent from the body, one day you'll be present with the Lord. Is that what it says? No. To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. The moment you breathe your last breath here and your eyes close, they awaken in the presence of our Savior. And you should shout amen right now. I mean, that's one of the greatest truths that we have. The moment we breathe our last, we're in his presence. Paul wrote, to depart to be with the Lord is much better. He wasn't longing for death so his soul would sleep, but he was longing to be with Jesus. Sleep is a picture of rest, rejuvenation, refreshment. In fact, there's an interesting contrast in Revelation 14. It says, in the smoke of their torment, that's the unbelievers, will rise forever, ever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or his image for anyone who receives the mark of his time. For those that don't know Christ, there's no rest day or night. Some of you work difficult jobs. You do manual labor. You work hard. I, I remember when I worked offshore. Some of you have been in the military. You've worked hard. and You collapse on your bed at night. When I worked offshore for four summers uh, in between my college years, there, there were days when we would come in. I didn't want to go take a shower. I didn't want to eat dinner. And that's a big thing. I'm telling you, I just wanted to go to bed. And I'd collapse on that bunk. And then I'd wake up in a couple hours, go take a shower and grab something to eat because you're just wiped out. Can you imagine being like that for all of eternity? No rest, day or night. As opposed to this. Then I heard a voice from heaven who says, write this, blessed is the dead who die in Christ, who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow after them. So that means there's no work in heaven. We don't do anything. We just float around in a cloud, pluck on a harp somewhere. That's not what it means at all. In fact, if you look to, at Genesis chapter one, Adam and Eve had work to do before the fall ever came. They had a job to do. They had work to do. They had to subdue the earth. They had to, they had to rule over the animals. And so in the perfect world, there was work to do. In the perfect world, in the afterlife, there's work for us to do. We'll talk about that in week three. But the reality of it is, I don't want to be the guy, if, if not even dealing with the issue of sin, just those two things right there, I'd rather be in verse 13 than in verse 11, wouldn't you? It's restful sleep. 
Restful sleep, that doesn't mean inactivity. It means labor without tiring. It means work without fatiguing. It means leisure without boredom. Now, when I go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning, I don't look at my bride who slept next to me and said, oh my God, I'm scared to death. Bev is here. I mean, I don't do that. Some of you do. Okay. So, oh my gosh. When I wake up in the morning, and I wake up before she does, and I'm gone, but I wake up in the morning, I look at my bride. I don't touch her because I'll be in trouble if I do that and wake her up. I look at my bride, and I'm at peace. One day you're going to wake up in the presence of the Savior. You don't have to fear. It's like going to sleep with somebody you love, and you're going to open your eyes, and it's not going to be your spouse. It's going to be your Savior. It's a great old hymn, face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, what will it be? Face to face, one day in glory, face to face with me. Face to face. When we see our Savior face to face, there's no reason to fear because he'll be there. I shared this story, some of you will remember it. When our grandkids were little, we went to the Gaylord up in Dallas for a couple of nights and uh, we put the kids to to bed and the adults stayed up and talked and we're in adjoining rooms with the door in between. And uh, so the kids were asleep. Then we moved them each to bed to be with us. And I had Jackson, one of the twins. And uh, so they went to bed one place, they asleep in one place, we moved them to a different bed. And uh, in the middle of the night, about 2 a.m., I had a slap in the face, bam. And my eyes are wide awake. I pop up and then Jackson is nose to nose with me. He's about five years old at that time, just nose to nose to me. And you know, somebody slaps you in the face at two in the morning. It's like, where am I right now? And Jackson looks at me, he screamed, you're not my daddy. <laughs> and I was, uh, you know, I'm trying to get my wits about me. He said, no, Jackson, it's Papa Doe. Your daddy's in the next room. And he looks at me and says, okay. And he put his head down right to sleep. <laughs> I never slept again that night. But why was he able to do that? Because he knew his dad was on the other side, that's how. And he had to fear. He had sleepful rest while I had no rest for the rest of the night. You're gonna have an exodus. You know who's on the other side. You're gonna fall asleep and wake up and you're gonna see who's on the other side. And then there are two other descriptions of uh, death in the scriptures that, in the New Testament that we see. One is a collapsing tent. How many of you like to camp? Let me see your hand. You like to camp? Okay. Lord help you. That's what hotels are made for. Now, I'm not talking about, let me ask that question again. I'm not talking about RVs. I'm not talking about campers. I'm not talking about trailers. I'm not talking about uh, dude ranches. I'm not talking about like Pine Cove camping. I, I'm talking about tents. Now, how many of you like to camp? Let me see your hands. Wow. Lord help you. But hey, you, you got a tent. How many of you have tents? You actually have tents. Wow. So if you have a tent, eventually, eventually you got to replace it. That's what I'm told. I've never had one. <laughs> eventually, I mean, you go to bed, and, and if it's hot, you're hot. If it's cold, you hope you're under a sleeping bag, but you're going to freeze your buns off in the morning. A tent is a temporary dwelling, it's not a permanent place. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, this body is a tent. This body is going to go away. This body is decaying. That tent you use to camp in decays eventually. And he says, we have a body just like that. It decays. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we will have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. Meanwhile, this tent groans. And as I get older, it groans. Longing to be clothed instead 
uh, with our eternal, with our heavenly dwelling. So one day this tent is going to collapse. One day this tent's going to go away. And one day we're going to receive this resurrected body. And one day we're going to live in glory forever and ever in a different way. But death is described as a tent that collapses. You know, the people that I know that long the most for heaven fall into two categories. People who don't have much of this earthly good, they can't wait to be in a place that they're provided for. You come with me to Africa where they don't know where their next meal is coming from. They, they don't know if they're going to have a drink of water. They don't have a place that's stable. They sing more about heaven than any place I've ever been. They sing about heaven over and over and over. And then also people who are dying. When I go to a hospital room and people are dying, then I'll say, hey, Pastor Gary, tell me about the LSU game last night because I don't want to talk about it. I don't. They don't say, hey, tell me about the, the Astros. Hey, let's talk about the stock market. They want to talk about Jesus and eternity, heaven. Those that don't have much of this world's good and those that are dying. Because this tent is going to go away. Let me encourage you to do this. Don't drive the stakes of your tent so deeply into the ground of this earth that you don't want to leave. Did you hear what I said? Don't be so attached to this world that you don't think about and even long for the next one. If you're like I am, my, my tent stakes have gone really deep. And my world has been turned upside down for the last four and a half years. And when you know you've got a 10% chance to survive seven more months, that's a harsh statistic. And I've thought more about eternity in the last, certainly the last five months, but certainly the last four years than I've ever imagined. And I can tell you, my personal experience is this. I, I'd love to live longer. I'd love to see several more years. I don't know if I will, but I know this. On the other side is a Savior who's departed, he's exited, and he's waiting for me. On the other side is a Savior who loves me. It's just like my friends in the Ukraine, he's going to be there waiting for me. And this body, this body, I can't wait to have this thing replaced. <laughs> to be able to eat and not get fat, I mean, that's heaven. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I don't know, guys. I, I know this. I've fallen deeper and deeper in love with the Savior. And, and I've still got a long way to go. But I pray I don't go out in fear. I, I want to go out thinking about face-to-face -face with that Savior. I want to be Jackson Riggs who slaps his papado in the face, but he's okay because his daddy's in the next room. So that, that's what death is described as. Finally, death is described as a ship that's sailing. It's a ship that's sailing. Paul says this. He says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with the Lord, and that's far better. It's pretty interesting. The Greek word used for depart there is not the same word that Jesus uses back in Luke that we looked at. It's a different word. It's not the exodus word. It's a word, it's interesting. A.T. Robinson is a Greek scholar. He's got his own translation of the New Testament. It's really well done. The word depart there is pulling up an anchor so a ship can sail. That's the concept behind that. So he's saying, it's time for me to depart. It's time for my anchor to be lifted up and for me to go to my heavenly destination. It's time for me to set sail. Now, how many of you have sailed before? 
Several of you. How many of you have at least cruised before? You know what that's like? I, I mean, you get on a cruise ship, you say, I can't stand this. I don't want to be here. I'm scared to death. I, I, I don't know where we're going. We're, we're, we're lifting up the, 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 the tides and the anchor, and, and we're going to be at sea again, and we're going to go to this next port where it, it's going to be a ball, but we're scared. You don't live that way. You, you think, this is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful gift. It's a high privilege. It's grace extended to me, and that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I, I'm ready to set sail. It's time for me to go to my heavenly destination. In the next verses, it, it, he's having this wrestling match, but Christ says it's not now, and it's not until 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, my time has now come. It's not until later that Paul dies. But Paul says, hey, to depart is like setting sail. Then let me ask you a question. When death is described to you as an exodus, as restful sleep, a collapsing tent that's going to be refitted into a new body and a sailing ship headed to a new destination, does that sound fearful to you? when you know who's on the other side. That's the way death and leaving is described. So Pastor Gary, when the curtain parts, what happens? When I breathe my last breath here, what takes place? What happens next is called the intermediate state by theologians, the intermediate state. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one day this body's coming out of the grave. One, one day, th- this body's come out of the grave and be given a glorified body, but that's later. That's later. That, that, that's after the return of Christ. That's after all that. that. That's an eternal body given to me to live in a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. That, that happens later in time. So what happens when I die right now? Do I, what, what happens in the meantime? What, what happens till then, Pastor Gary? Theologians describe it as this intermediate state. Well, I can tell you this. Jesus said, truly, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's the truth. Today it's going to happen. The day you breathe your last, you will be in the presence of Jesus. That's going to take place. What will we look like? What will we do? Will we be disembodied, unrecognizable souls floating in the clouds? First thing I can tell you, you're going to be with the Lord. You're going to be with the Lord. I've told you several times, I've got a friend who has a coffee cup, he's a grandpa, and it says, what makes grandpa's house special is grandpa. I can tell you this, what makes eternity special is Jesus. Father, Son, Spirit will be in their presence forever. There are a lot of questions I cannot answer about this intermediate state, but I know he's gone there, he's preparing a glorious place for us, and one day we will be with him face to face. I, I know this, the, the, if you could describe the most exhilarating five minutes of your life, you know what it took place? When you were born. You left a dark womb, you left a, a, a place of, of water, and you woke up to bright lights, people staring at you, a mom and a dad who loved you. If we could somehow describe that, it's probably the most exhilarating thing. Nobody says, hey, I want to get back in there. I, I really want to go back in there. It, it was nicer. It was safer. It was more fun. The first five minutes you're in the presence of the Savior, you're not going to say, hey, I, I want to go back to planet Earth. You're going to be with Him. The other thing I can tell you about this intermediate state, there's a parable in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable of Lazarus and the rich man the rich man, it's the only, by the way, it's the only time a person's name is used in a parable by Jesus. This isn't the same Lazarus we just read about. This is a different Lazarus. The Lazarus who was resurrected, Mary, Martha's brother, they came from a home. They had means. This is Lazarus. He's a poor guy. He stand, he's outside a, a rich man's house hoping for scraps of food that's fit for a dog. Uh, the, the, and, oh, I'm sorry. He's wanting scraps of food from the rich man's table. His wounds are licked by a dog. They die, the rich man goes to a place of torment, Lazarus goes to the presence of God, Abraham's bosom. He's with Father Abraham. 
And there's several things there that describe physical features. In other words, uh, Lazarus has a finger because he's asking to dip his finger in place on the tongue of the rich man who's in torment. So we see physical descriptions. We see names given. We see recognition. Moses and Elijah recognized. They were all in this intermediate state. So I think we can make some assumptions about that. I can't tell you everything clearly that you'd like to know. But I can tell you this, you will be in the presence of the Savior. It will be unlike anything you have ever experienced. The moment after you go behind this parted curtain, one thing is true from that parable. It's fixed eternally where you will be. It's fixed eternally where you'll be. That parable teaches that. So let me conclude with two applications. And I'm going to ask the worship team, would you guys come and join me? Number one, you've got to get ready. You've got to get ready. You don't know if you're going to live two more days. You don't know if you're going to live two more hours. You need to get ready. Some of you here, and yeah, I'm 13. I, I, what do you mean talking about death? I'm not gone anywhere. You might. I guarantee you our DPS officer who went out yesterday and was working, was hit by a truck and killed, he probably didn't think yesterday was his last day. Bless him and his family. I guarantee you on 911, there were thousands of people working in Twin Towers who didn't think yesterday was going to be their last, or that day was their last day, but it was. There are people every day, every single day, whose lives are lost and they didn't think it was going to be their last day. I'm inviting you today to get ready. Because once you pass behind that curtain, it's eternally fixed as to where you will be. In the presence of the Savior or not. And I pray you'll get ready. Secondly, you need to stay ready. We need to live our lives for Jesus every single day. Many of you know that I, four years ago, when I was diagnosed with this disease, I had a plaque placed upon my desk. And uh, it says this, it says, with his sword unsheathed, his armor in place, he went directly to see the king with a stain of battle still in his garments. That's my prayer for me and for you. That when you breathe your last breath, and I pray this can be said of me instead of you, we enter into his presence with our sword unsheathed, our arrow in place, and we go to see the king with a stain of battle still in our garments. If that's not true for you right now, if your armor's not in place and it's not right, or you're not ready, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to come get on your knees down here with me. And I'm asking you to get right, maybe for the first time, or to get right so you can stay right forever. So we're going to talk about what that's like for the next three weeks to be in his presence. But I've got to start by saying you've got to get ready, and you've got to stay ready. So if you don't know Jesus, this is your morning to declare your faith in him, to ask him for forgiveness of sin. You come down here, you get on your knees, and you make sure that Christ, if there's any doubt in your mind, you come do that. Well, some of you are saying, Pastor Gary, if I died today, if I died today, I know Jesus, but my sword is not unsheathed. The, my armor is not where it needs to be. The stain of battle is not on my garment. So our worship team is going to sing. We're going to stand together and sing with them. I'm going to be on my knees. You come get on your knees. You make sure you're right with Jesus. And that's how we're going to conclude our service.
was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains Like snow.